Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, guys, welcome to another episode of Latte with Lawyer. I'm Jonathan Brickman. I'm your host today. And today we've got a, a great guest, uh, Ben Lusty, who's from the state of Utah. And I'm probably going to screw up the name of your firm, Rencher and Jewerden. How'd I do? Jewerden. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah. Oh, good. So is what kind of name is that, Andrew Jewerden? Is that a Dutch name? So I've been told, yeah. Ah, good. That was a good guess then. Excellent. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so just to kick things off and keep it the theme of the show, tell us what's your favorite uh, morning beverage of choice. Well, I cycle between water and then just some brewed coffee and then normally a Diet Coke over about a two hour period when I wake up. So you go for two hours and you shut yourself off for the day? <laughs> no, I, I do nothing for about two hours except drink and mindlessly read the news and and then i get going so yeah okay good 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 it's funny uh, uh i just had somebody on the last show and he uh he's a water guy i've heard more people it must be a trend because i hear more people say as opposed to coffee water so there's something in the air where people are decaffeinating and having water instead which i guess is a good thing well i do i do water and caffeine so i guess i, I, I couldn't say okay all right that's that's fair enough um, so tell us about, you know, what kind of work you do and what the firm does. And Yeah, so we're mostly, the firm started, you know, back before I was in the legal world as, as a general insurance defense. But over the past 10 years, we've transitioned to really focusing on med mal defense. Okay. And so we're a small shop. We're at five lawyers right now. We're always looking to add, but it's a challenging market from the hiring perspective, which as a 2008 graduate, I don't like the cosmic injustice of that, but, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so now about, you know, 80% of our work is med mal defense and the rest is kind of related work to the medical industry. Uh, we're almost entirely in litigation. I do some estate planning in addition to my med mal defense, but that's really, that's really where we're at. Okay. And how'd you, and how did you end up focusing on med mal? Did something happen that sort of brought the firm that direction? So I, I think a couple things were happening in our, in our industry that really made that a, the choice for us. One, uh, traditionally the insurance defense work was a lot of car accident cases, plus whatever else a CGL might yeah. cover. And a lot of the insurers here in Utah were moving that work to their in-house counsel, to their, uh, their employed attorneys. Uh, but the med mal carriers, because most of those are mutual companies owned by the doctors who buy the policies, they're much less cognizant of how much they're spending on legal expenses because they want defense. So you know, the insurers, when we're doing car crashes, would pay lower rates and cut our bills and then just move the work in-house anyway, whereas the malpractice carriers would never cut our bills, didn't really fight us on rates. And, you know, if we told them, hey, this case is gonna be a quarter of a million to defend all the way to trial, they'd say, well, that's what we wanna do, so run with it. So that's, that's kind of how it went. And it was just a more satisfying experience as a lawyer where 
uh, we're not getting, you know, nickel and dimed and second guessed by the insurance company on defending the claim. And we could really say, we should file these motions. We should take these depositions. We should retain these experts. And they would say, great, go for it. Well, that's interesting. It's funny because, I mean, I've, I've had a bunch of, I mean, most of the work that we do is on the plaintiff side. Uh, but I have talked to a bunch of defense lawyers. You're the first I've heard, so maybe it is with just Med Mal, where you have more of a, a, a blank check. I, I've heard, you know, more the opposite that, you know, very sort of controlled, you know, budget spending. And, uh, but that's interesting. So you think that is just inherent to Med Mal practice? So, yeah, the most of, and, and the carriers we work for are all mutually owned by the policyholders. And I, I know that there are a lot of auto carry companies or yeah. own, but you know, the doctors, you know, you get in a car accident, you pay the claim, you don't care. Uh, but someone sues a doctor and says, you've reached the standard of care. There's a lot of downstream complications oh, yeah, that can yeah, arise yeah. for that. And so they want to both, you know, win the case and manage the case. And a lot of them have consent to settle clauses. So if the doctor says, I don't want to settle, then the insurer says, well, our duty is a defense. So run the defense and we have to defend it anyway. And that's the, you know, that's just sort of the dynamic in the malpractice and the professional liability practice. But we, I mean, we still do some CGL work. We still do some uh, more on the commercial, the, the commercial claims and and oftentimes, if it's a, a an insured who's a you know a big client or a big customer of the insurance company, they are much more generous in the defense than they are if it's a pretty marginal. And it shouldn't. I mean, you know, come on, it shouldn't be like that. But we we right. kind of know that's how it is sometimes. So, um, yeah. but yeah, that's you know the the MedMal defense has always been more more satisfying. There's been more. I feel more like I'm practicing law rather than managing claims, more like I'm practicing law than, you know, running a small business when I'm doing the med mal defense. Makes sense. Yeah. So you're using the resources as you see fit as opposed to having <laughs> these constraints. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. I, okay. That, that, that's actually really interesting to hear, to hear that. Um, and is it just regionally just in the state of Utah or you practice in other states? We are mostly in, in state. We do a few claims in the surrounding states in Nevada, Idaho, Montana, but those are uh, those are almost client specific. So yeah. uh, we we represented, for example, a group of hospitalists that has practice all over the state, or excuse me, the western states, and and their general counsel always requests us, uh, regardless of what state we're in. So we'll 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 appear pro hoc and and work with good local counsel and and do those. And I mean, we've done we're we're doing more Idaho than we had in the past. So I'm I'm on at the point where I think, well, should I apply for licensure there? But oh, so far, we're we're more or less Utah lawyers, yeah. And you're working on behalf of the insurance company. Well, I mean, they pay the bill, they refer the cases, but right. you know, the doc is the client, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I understand. And, yeah. and these are more regional insurance companies. Yeah. So they're not. You know, they're companies that you wouldn't, you know, unless you were in the industry, you wouldn't recognize. Right. So yeah, when yeah. we were doing when we were doing cars, I'd say, oh, yeah, we do work for Farmers or the Hartford or Liberty Mutual. And we all know those names. Sure. Right. These are very you know, specialized companies that, you know, insurance brokers know, doctors know, but your average 
average person. Yeah, you got it. I understand. Yeah. Are there any big ones in that space that do? The biggest is, uh, yeah, so there's a couple. So uh, the biggest is one called the Doctors Company, okay, uh, which has always been in Utah, but has a varying different level of market presence. They're leaning more back into Utah. Uh, and then uh, CNA, which is a... Oh, yeah, I know CNA, sure. Yeah, which is a pretty big... I mean, they're not a consumer company, but they... They do a lot of insurance across a lot of different lines, and they have a, they have some practice uh, in insurance. They, they, most of the work we do for CNA involves uh, allied professionals like dentists or uh, skilled nursing facilities and other non-hospital healthcare entities. Yeah, with with COVID, did you get a lot of that work? The skilled nursing facilities. Well, we've been doing progressively more skilled nursing over the years, and one of yeah. the reasons is is that skilled nursing facilities are increasingly becoming litigation targets. Oh yeah. Uh, people used to sue doctors all the time. They still sue doctors, but jurors I found are a little more doctor friendly, but everyone's had a bad nursing home experience. Oh yeah. So yes. the jurors give no benefit of the doubt to the skilled nursing facilities, the nursing homes, retirement homes, whatever you're going to call them. So those claims have really escalated and, and it might be Utah specific, but and I know for decades, it's been an issue in like Florida and, and kind of the bigger retirement communities. But oh, yeah. we've had a few pretty big wrongful death verdicts uh, lately for, you know, residents who have been in their 80s and die. And their adult children who are almost retired themselves are getting pretty big verdicts. Huh. So a lot of the plaintiff's attorneys are, you know, moving in there because, you know, someone dies in a nursing home every day. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a common event. So. Yeah, there's a potential wrongful death suit every time. And if they can link it to a fall, they'll pull the records and say, how often was the person uh, uh, transferred? Was it a two-person transfer? I mean, they'll, they'll get into all of those questions. And, you know, and the nice, I mean, I guess from the plaintiff's perspective, the nice thing about the skilled nursing facility cases are actually much cheaper to run because a nursing home expert is just cheaper to pay than say a brain surgeon or a right. thoracic surgeon or someone like that. Right. You know, I just, it's funny, I've, I've actually uh, just experienced what you're describing because one of my brothers had a pretty serious accident and was placed into, doesn't yeah, have a lot yeah. of means, a, a, a nursing facility. Yeah. And he complained continuously about the standard of care. And you could just see it could easily have um, descended into that scenario. And, and the, you know, one of the, just kind of the long-term structural problems with those entities is that almost all the care in those facilities is done by a CNA who's, you know, certified nursing assistant, unlicensed, not particularly well-paid, not very well-trained. Correct. Uh, and, but, you know, so, but the economics of it just demand that because for the level of person-to-person -person care that has to be done, you know, if you were bringing in people and paying them $20, $30 an hour, the, the cost would be, I mean, I don't think anyone would. would yeah, limited that. resources spread out over yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, no, exactly. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see that. Yeah, so I mean, so that's like a great, like, you know, incubator for these kind of cases, yes, admit, right? Oh, yeah. To be totally and, and, callous about it, yeah. Well, in pretty much all my lawsuits where I defend the skilled nursing facilities come down to, uh, 
a mistake alleged to have been made by an unlicensed person. Almost no one points to the medical director or the director of nursing and say there was a problem. Right. They say, well, uh, we only had one person move her from her wheelchair to the toilet. And yeah. that was when the fall happened. And yeah. it's so hard to defend because from a, from a liability perspective, right, you have to own that as a facility. But from just a realistic, can we ensure 100% compliance with these uh, care plans? <laughs> it's just, that's an impossible ask. Right. But if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. So that, that's where we see a, a progressive share of cases in Utah in the, what we call the malpractice space. I mean, people still sue surgeons and physicians all the time, but Got it. I'm seeing more energy in that, in that okay. area right now. I was looking at I was looking at your background. It looks like you also got an MBA in uh, London. How did that happen? That's an interesting part of your credentials. So it was a um, uh, one of these hybrid. The coursework was both in person and remote, okay. spread over two years. And at that period, I was thinking, you know, my wife was looking at some career opportunities out of state. And I thought, well, is this a good time to maybe find a new career path? Uh, and so I thought, you know, I should upgrade my skills because although she can go anywhere, I can't. I'm yeah, stuck yeah. in Utah. I mean, I could get licensed somewhere else, but it's is now a good time to maybe find a new area of, of, of practice or would this be a good idea if I wanted to go in-house somewhere? Um, so that was really the thinking behind that. Oh, and, yeah. and I like it. Was it good? Wanted additional education as well. Yeah, yeah. I've always been interested in that. And and how'd you like the program? I, I have an MBA. I remember getting that a long time ago. It's a great. I thought it was a great program. How'd you like that compared to law school? So the uh, the thing that always interested me most about business school was that it was so generalist because they were taking in people who had. All kinds of different backgrounds oh, yeah. engineering uh, uh finance marketing all of that and they're trying to teach you how to know enough about all of that to you know competently manage something right and and so i, I to me i really enjoyed the exposure to the different ways of thinking and the different ways of of looking at problems and it, it was always fascinating to me to watch how my engineering fellow students would approach a problem and they would, you know, roll out the, the, the spreadsheets. They were so quick on a spreadsheet yeah. and they could do things with spreadsheets that I still don't understand. <laughs> uh, but there was one of those guys, by the way, I was an engineer that went to business school. So I, yeah, that's funny. But, but their engineering of word or their understanding of word was a little bit uh, not as advanced. So it was, right. it was nice working with those guys. And I appreciated that exposure to different ways of thinking. And, I think it's actually been uh, been useful because, you know, aside from doctors, business people are the most suspicious of lawyers. And so being constantly forced to uh, translate the way I approach problems as a lawyer to people who are skeptical of lawyers, yeah. I think it's been really helpful uh, just to not how I practice law, but how I help clients and communicate to clients. Well, I mean, is law is a bit, you have a business too, right? I mean, I've been to a yeah. bunch of these seminars like Pilmer, or I don't know if you've been to any of these where the, you know it's about the business of law and you know I think you know doctors and lawyers are probably you know notorious for not running the business very well right right yeah so I would think it would be helpful 
Oh, and certainly some of the modules we did on uh, marketing and not just people confuse marketing with advertising, but it's how do you decide what business you want to be in? How do you put yourself in that business? How do you generate business in that line? How do you decide what not to do? And we've, I've, since the MBA, I've been very more focused on is which explains things like we're going to get out of cars and more into med mouth. We're going to, uh, we're going to pick up some allied lines of practice, like helping because a lot of our doctors are independent practitioners still, there are still a few of them out there. So, uh, helping them with their business transactions and then helping them with their estate planning, yep. because it's just something that our clients need. And we can, you know, we look kind of 360 degrees about the client. Like, what do they need uh, professionally, personally? We can and that we can help with. And so we start seeing things like that. But you know, then then every now and then the client will come to us and say, "Oh, my son got a DUI over the weekend. What do I do?" And I said, well, "Okay, and we had to make a decision where we're not going to be in that type of law because uh, we just don't know how to do it. We're five lawyers. So I mean, that's that's kind of where the marketing was very helpful because it's real." You know, what is it you can do? What are you good at? Yeah, there you do go. That. Stay and focused. If you, can, if you can build on it, okay. But if if it's a huge thing to build on it, then then don't. And so we we you know that 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 has been the most useful, I think, from the yeah, that's good thinking. I mean that that I mean what the way you describe it is exact so is so uh, on point because most people, you know, sort of you know they start creeping into all these other things when they really should stay focused and kind of own whatever that space is that they're best at. And it's such a temptation for a small firm or a solo because you think, well, I, I, I'm a generalist, so I can do anything. And it's not the case. And I know a lot of my, my colleagues in you know, big law are just so focused on specializing Yeah. because there's in their establishment, in their company, there's a, oh yeah, we have, we have antitrust people. I'm going to send that over to them. Or, you know, we have appellate people or, we have one family law person and we're going to send it over to them. And so I think they're just naturally minded to specialize. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of power and focus. I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's not as exciting, but you know, if you focus on something, you become really good at it mm-hmm. and you become much more efficient. You get, you get more throughput. So there's something to be yeah, said. I for agree. That. Yep. So I am a big believer in focus in business without a doubt. Um, so how'd you, how'd you make the decision to go to law school? How'd you even get into the world of law well i grew up just knowing that i enjoyed structured argument you know i, I wasn't I, I mean my parents probably say i was an argumentative person but i really liked <laughs> yeah. uh formal debate especially in high school i really quite enjoyed that and uh you know my father was a, is a federal prosecutor when i was oh. growing up so i was exposed to that but I also knew I had no desire to practice in the criminal world it just didn't interest me at all I, I still can't watch you know law and order or anything like that it's just, <laughs> just not my thing but yeah uh, so the structured argument of it I just really enjoyed and uh, it, it was just a very natural thing I actually don't think I ever imagined myself seriously in another profession from about the time I was 14 or so interesting yeah, I definitely can't say that for me. I mean, my life's been a crooked path. And I mean, I do hear people that say, I knew I wanted to be this my whole life. I mean, that seems foreign to me, but yeah, sure. I, I certainly heard plenty of people say that too. So it's interesting. 
Um, so you found your right spot. I mean, that's that's key, right? You got if if you like what you're doing, then you're going to be happy at it, and you'll stay with it. Well, I enjoy most of what I do. You know, we all have things we have to do. Yeah, 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 <laughs> sure. sure. Um, what was I going to ask you? Um, is there anything since you've been doing this that's been a really interesting case that uh, you've worked on, or you think people would find interesting? Well, you know, there, there's the so i've had a few supreme court cases state supreme court cases and a few circuit court cases and they always tend to be in these real hyper technical areas so i had one about subordination of mortgage documents of mortgage liens that was when i worked on more when i was an associate and we had a partner who did uh, banking law and that went all the way to the state supreme court and we got a good judgment that is now being cited in other states which is really good that there was a case a few years ago that i worked on took all the way by myself and was sort of my first from filing to appeal and it, it was all about insurance priority interpreting workers compensation statutes and underinsured motorist statutes and 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 which one is priority which one takes the loss first and what was sat satisfying about that one is the supreme court pretty much quoted pretty large portions of my brief verbatim in the opinion, which feels very good because they're oh, smarter sure. than me and have clerks in that. I actually just wrapped up in another life. I did family law and I, I, I try not to be too public about that because then I get all the requests and I mean, I turn <laughs> for those now, but, um, but I still do appellate work for my colleagues in family law who uh, I, I admire how they stick to that and get really good at family law and uh, are very willing to ask for people to help them with with different parts of law mm. and so i do a lot of appellate work for my colleagues there and i had one case that we just argued in uh, the state supreme court and we don't have the judgment back yet but the, the question there is when a when a judge determines that an ex-spouse's religion is harmful to the children. And it's established law that they, they can make that determination. They have to make specific findings. But um, once they do, what can they order the parent not to say about religion around the children? Which brings up a lot of very thorny constitutional questions, oh, yeah, so. questions, yeah. uh, due process questions that uh, some states have ruled on and some states haven't. And I'm really surprised we actually haven't had a federal case on it. But uh, so I was, you know, when I finished my brief, I had, I put my case index together and I had four pages of case citations. And I thought that that's exciting. I love citing cases and having a, a big, thick bibliography like that just really Really made me feel good, but that interesting question is so, uh, you know, took a lot of thought, and it, it, it's just, and I don't hold myself out as a First Amendment lawyer or a constitutional lawyer, but one of the nice thing about taking these cases and being a, a litigator is that you get some of these interesting cases, and you never know when the most mundane uh, case that comes through your door might really trigger some interesting issues. Uh, Every med mal case I've had, I've had at least one legal question that needed a little bit of brain power on, even though we, we know the law and med mal so well. Yeah. 
so it, you know whether it's procedure or evidence or that sort of thing. But this last case on on that, you know, what can a parent say about their religion around children when the other parent has legal custody and thus the right to decide the religious upbringing of the children? And the is that what is, triggers it? The fact that it's no longer current. It's an ex. Right. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So the law has just presumed that when you have legal custody, you're the one that decides the important things for the kids. Okay. You make the education decisions, the healthcare decisions, the religion decisions. And uh, does that mean that essentially the court in support of, you know, giving mother legal custody can gag father from saying, I think this religious practice is good or kids, you should be baptized into this church or I'm going to baptize you into this church. And that runs right into the wall of, you know, for the past hundred years, the Supreme Court has said, hey, look, parents have a fundamental right in raising their children and in educating their children. You know, you, the Amish can take their kids out of high school at 14. Uh, you know, it goes all the way back to Meyer v. Nebraska, that case where uh, the state of Nebraska passed a law banning instruction in the German language. And parents said, no, we want our kids taught in German. And the Supreme Court found for them. And so we, we've had this kind of tussle for 100 years. But then what does that mean when you have divorce? Who gets to say what? Uh, who gets to make decisions? And, and there's never really been a US Supreme Court case on point. And there have been a lot of cases that are informative about you know, what, the, what we mean when we say parental rights, because it's, it's not the same thing in every context. Uh, but the state of Utah just hadn't yet addressed the question, which is, which is odd to be honest with you, because in this state, we've had a long history of splinter polygamous groups from the right. LDS church that yeah, yeah. Uh, teach things that a lot of people do find to be harmful to children. And we've had a lot of tussle back and forth in the courts, in the Utah courts about you know, what can people who, who believe in polygamy, what can they do and what can't they do? Where do we draw the line between what we're gonna say is acceptable religious practice versus what we're gonna say is harmful to minor children? Uh, you know, what violates our bigamy laws? I mean, so th this question has been ongoing in Utah for a long time, but surprisingly, we haven't had a state Supreme Court case where in the divorce context, and we've had a divided uh, award of custody where they've said, thou shalt not say anything about this, this topic to your own children. And it's surprising that it's taken that long, but, but that's, that's the question. It's called Kingston to Kingston. We expect it to come down this summer. And uh, I get the impression that uh, the opposing party, I represent the mother who, who was awarded legal custody, is interested in continuing this case if, if the judgment is upheld, whether that is going to, you know, Supreme Court would take oh, certain. You know? Yeah, that's very uh, Obviously, odds are against, but if they do, then legal minds more experienced than mine i'm sure will involve themselves quickly on that case yeah 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 well i mean you you see the legislature that's happening here in the state of florida about you know what you can and cannot do with children in the class right <laughs> it's 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 one of these questions that is just so fraught i guess yeah. is the best way to put it yeah 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 now there's some thorny stuff there so it that just listening to you, it seems like that's the kind of stuff you probably, you look forward to, you look forward to those kind of cases. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's the case that, you know, you take pro or low bono and, uh, 
you know, I, I put more work into the case than I build for sure. And yeah, and thought more about it kind of off time, off hours than, you know, the, 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 the seventh radiology misinterpretation case I've had in the month of, of April. So, you know, uh, yeah. but yeah, and that's one of the great things about practicing law as well is that, um, unlike other professions, we do have a little bit more scope to go out of our specialty in, in particular cases than, than a lot of people have, you know, no doctor who's a cardiologist should ever do anything with the brain. Uh, you probably know this in engineering, like, uh, I may be making this up, but materials engineers probably shouldn't do too much about nuclear engineering. Well, yeah, yeah no, sure, of course right. you stay within your discipline. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you could I was have, a civil engineer, by the way, but actually, I did take a course in materials science, which I couldn't stand. It was very difficult. Right. But <laughs> as a lawyer, you know, if someone comes to you with a topic that's out of your specialty, you at least know where to start and, and how to get into that. And they we're like, well, do I want to spend 40 hours learning this law or no? Right. And sometimes the answer is yes. Well, if you're a local, you know, um, sort of, um, you know, local attorney general is solo practitioner, right? You're constantly learning. Oh, yeah. New things, right? Oh, those guys have a breadth of knowledge that is impressive. Yeah. You got you to be a quick study, right? So you can get up to speed so you can at least try the case um, somewhat competently. But uh, yeah. So yeah. So you can apply those basic legal skills to lots of areas without having to be a mile deep in the right. yeah. what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting stuff. Soft um, silos in law very soft silos okay interesting i mean yeah but most um i mean in most professions um people are definitely specialization is certainly uh in vogue i mean people there are less generalists and more specialists i would say today yeah, right very true and 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 that's and it's trending that way as well people are yeah. getting more specialized yeah i mean even like you know i'm a sales i mean i've been a sales professional even in like sales sort of methodology it used to be that you know, in the old days, I mean, you would like knock on the door, you do a presentation, you would sell the, you sell the person, you'd manage the relationship, you do everything. I mean, in today's world, you have one group that just does outbound marketing. You have another group that calls people. You have another group that takes that person and then, you know, takes them this far. Then you have another group. So even within that, they've created these little specialized functions. And between different types of products, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. A, a car I mean, may not be able to sell an airplane, for example. Yeah. I mean, you, you, there's no question you got more throughput and it's, um, you become better at it, but it's, it's a little, um, it's a little confining, right? Because if you're just doing the same thing all the time, but um, anyway, yeah. Uh, what what you're describing is interesting. I would think that that would be exciting as a lawyer, just to sort of you know, uh, you know, take on some other things just for the intellectual. Oh yeah, experience. That's uh, one of one of my favorite things about practicing law, and why I've really stayed in the profession is that the exposure to new problems and new things to think about, and your practice can expand and grow, which yeah, yeah. Uh, which I have enjoyed. Good, got it. So, what what would you recommend somebody to go into law today and become a lawyer? And what would, what would you tell them? So, yeah. So, what I'd say is, I would ask them first of all, do you really want? Do you want to be a? Do you want to practice law? Because if you do, then 
you know, unless you're a Kardashian, you have to go to law school. That's just, that's just, your, you have to. Right. And uh, knowing that you want to practice law is worth taking a year or so after college before you really start on that track. And, and it's super expensive these days to, to get into law. And, you know, it took me 12 years to pay off my student loans. And I was very fortunate in how I was able to do that. And people who are getting into the profession now are looking at, you know, more than six figures of, of debt if they're going to a private school. And so I said, look, if you want to practice law, you have to go to law school. But if you don't want to practice law, then don't go to law school. I, I've heard a lot of people say, oh, law is a great general education. Yes. Uh, and it, and it may be, but I think there are better general educations for the money out there. So I, I'm not sure I would necessarily say go to law school unless, you know, just, just to be inducted into the professional world. I don't think that's the, the right step because it's just so expensive. Yeah, it's very expensive. But, you know, in terms of is law a good profession, it is what you make of it. I know, I know people who get you know, who all they want to do is be a public prosecutor. And those are hard jobs to get, but they're always going to be needed. And I know people who couldn't find any work and so started their own practice and are making, you know, millions a year. Uh, but they're better business people than necessarily than they are lawyers. And, but there's always going to be room for that. I, I, there's always, I'm surprised constantly by how much demand there is for legal advice and how much unmet supply there is for legal advice. Hmm. And it, it, it just often surprises me how hard it is for lawyers to connect to clients uh, in a way that is not intimidating to the client because clients need legal advice, but they're afraid of, of getting a $20,000 bill. And there's just so much unmet legal demand out there, I think, but it's a great profession. I think it's one that if you're suited for and that you enjoy, you're going to love. And, and, and it's going to be here in 50 years. It's going to be here in a hundred years. I don't know what types of, you know, you know, the world turns and churns so much, but we have three articles of, of gov or three branches of government in the United States. And one of which is the judicial branch. And as long as that's right. there, yeah. we're going to need lawyers. Yeah. So that's sort of just to segue into this. So um, as the world keeps changing, I mean, how are you guys and what's your view on using technology in, in the practice of law? So I, I'm pretty analog. I still take hand notes. Uh, I, I think I do my best thinking when I take hand notes. Uh, but you know, there are some technologies that are just absolutely indispensable. So I couldn't imagine practicing law without a, a Lexus or a Westlaw subscription. And I don't know if we count that as a technology, but the legal database and the search engines that they have now are just fantastic. And when I started law school, we had one day where we searched out cases in the old reporters and used the West key system and did it on paper. And then the librarian was like, okay, just kidding. You know, this is how you do Westlaw and Lexus. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that, you know, if, if you read a case from the 1930s, you're, you'd maybe see one or two case citations in, in that case. And I think the reason was it was just harder to find oh, precedent sure. when you had to do it by hand, essentially. 
And opinions were also shorter, which makes sense because these had to be dictated and then typed and proofed. And it was just harder to process words. And so I couldn't imagine the practice of law without modern word processing, without Lexis. Um, I was very surprised by how well we in the litigation world uh, acclimated to Zoom and uh, WebEx. I was even more surprised by how well the court system did. And I think that it's a superior way to handle kind of routine legal matters with the courts and, and sort of routine depositions. Uh, I will still say though that face-to-face -face depositions I think are better for like expert witnesses and parties um, because part of the way we're doing our job is to say, who are these people? How do we think they're gonna come across to a jury? Right. And that's, that's gonna be an in-person thing. It should be an in-person thing because as long as we say, well, a jury is gonna be making credibility determinations, doing that over Zoom just seems impossible to me. But, uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, courtroom technology that just gets ignored. Uh, so we have a lot of fancy display screens and a lot of, you know, kind of gee whiz, press a button here and everyone say, you know, you can highlight and play audio and video and that. And uh, I don't know that that's going to really be the wave of the future, because in my experience, jurors like hearing from witnesses and they like hearing what a witness has to say. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen a lawyer in court ask a witness to go through a document and say, okay, well, what does it say? And is this what you did? Is this right according to the document? Or you could have just had the person on the stand say, what happened? <laughs> you know, and, and they'll, I think that's more meaningful to a jury. Um, so I think technology is gonna matter, but I don't think, I think it's gonna be incremental and it's going to be technology that just makes it, like, I don't see any use for technology for its own sake, but I'll give you a good example. Like uh, uh, Clio is an excellent, legal technology, the billing software, because yeah. it's just so much easier to bill with the cloud-based software. Uh, and it, it, it's just, it's made it easier for us to do our job. I think Dropbox is a good thing too for us so we can work remotely a lot easier. But, um, you know, we're definitely in my shop uh, behind the curve in terms of integrating technology. And I think that's an okay place to be because my business model is about me spending my time working on client stuff and i can do that with right. the technology we had 20 years ago frankly yeah, yeah. No, it is interesting i mean um i asked this question of everybody but you know the the large firms you know the am law 100 and, and the level below i mean they have innovation groups that's all they do is evaluate technologies right how, how can they become more efficient where can they get operating leverage you know what are new ways for you know, there's a there's, there's so much legal tech you're probably aware of. I mean, there's no shortage of it. You know, we have a legal tech platform. You know, for case preparation. Um, so it is interesting. I think you got to pick your. You know, people are, are afraid. I don't care what the industry is that you know technology AI is going to replace people. I don't think that happens. I think it becomes a it augments what you're doing, and if it uh, helps in certain areas, then you use it. It's not it's not going to replace people. Um, well, I, I mean, who's going to write an algorithm that can take a deposition? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, so I think there's some legal work. Sure. It's going to be audit. I mean, I imagine most doc review is being done that way. Yeah. Doc review, document preparation, a lot of that kind of basic we're low level stuff that doesn't require high level thinking. Um, sure. You can 
A lot of the things I've seen though is that the technology leads the lawyer rather than the lawyer leading the technology. And that's that's my where I'm skeptical is right. that um, when the platform is telling you what to do rather than you're telling it what to do. And I don't I don't know many of these products, but I've seen a few demonstrated. I'm like, there's a lot of online forms to check out just to enter a billing entry. That <laughs> seems well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, so and I'll give you an example, like uh, we have doctors all the time who use uh, EMRs, electronic medical records. Yeah, yeah, sure. In fact, that's all they yeah. use now. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's got a lot of advantages in that the healthcare information is very portable and everyone in a major hospital network can use it all at the same time. But then you start asking these doctors like, well, when did you make this entry? And it, well, unless it's noted there, I, I couldn't tell you. Um, or you'd pull up, a, you'd, you'd get the record and you'd print it off and show them to them at a deposition and say, is this your record? And they say, I have no idea because it doesn't look anything like what I do. <laughs> you know, right. I type something in on the computer and what you're showing me just doesn't look like that. Uh, so EMR was really forced on a lot of the doctors and, you know, they're adapting to it well and they're using it well, but it, it well, there's always does. unintended consequences, right? Yeah. I mean, the re I, I, I happen to know the reason why for EMR is just from a totally different perspective, but you're right. There's always, there's always a, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? So yeah, they're making it efficient. I can now share information easily. However, you're right. If you're in a courtroom, how do I know that you actually made the entry, right? Because it's digital. Or the engineering protocols and logic, why we designed an algorithm this way versus this way makes sense but the doctor's trying to decide between prescribing a or b and it's just completely irrelevant to the medical decision that's being made but we still have to fight our way through that in the forensic review of it if there's a lawsuit that's being filed and or sometimes they start putting things into their record that they're doing just to make the screen go to the next page yeah that they don't always that they wouldn't always know you know so it if technology makes you do that, I don't see how it's good for a professional, but if it makes it so the things that I want to do, I do easier, then that's perfect. And I think that's why like Clio and Dropbox have been so helpful, at least for me. Well, that. yeah, that is the trick to software development, by the way. Oh yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. That, that's why software development is so hard because you have to make it so it, it's really organic and it really sort of matches the natural workflow. Mm -hmm. It's really tricky to do it well, but uh, I, when you get it right, that's why I don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really hard. That you know, that's why you're you're sticking to analog, the analog world, you, you, right? The, you're not losing anything there. It just means maybe you're not going as fast as you could. But anyway, it's maybe, interesting. Maybe I, I, not. But I'm also not incentivized to go much faster. I get paid by the hour, so <laughs> you get paid by the hour. There you go. Actually, that that that's a whole other issue, right? That you. Uh, you're not incentivized, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, on the, it's the worst time, billing model, except for all the others we've tried. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that's, that, that, that's interesting. Um, well, listen, I always say that the legal profession to me seems like the last uh, bastion of inefficiency when it comes to, uh, you know, the commercial side of it. I mean, maybe yeah, not what you're say. doing, but like big corporate law, if they didn't exist, if big corporations didn't exist, then these big, these big law firms wouldn't make, incredible amounts of money right makes sense to me yeah this this the small local lawyer in the in the town is not making a ton of money 
Oh, we do fine, but uh, you know, when people say, "Oh, uh, Sullivan makes uh, a gazillion dollars per partner," I think, "What the hell are they doing to make that much?" How they? I'd like to know, but I'm not. I, I'm not sure. I'd like to do. Yeah. Well, I remember early in my career, I was a, I was in the real estate business, and you know, we had a big white shoe law firm that did all our document review. And, you know, we had the senior attorney and then we had the associate and then we had the new attorney that had to learn. So we had, you know, three or four attorneys on it billing at like crazy rates. And, you know, so at that time, you know, just a, a, a commercial mortgage agreement would cost 60,000 bucks. And it was, it's just, the economics just didn't make any sense, but it made sense because I had a big bank on the other side that was going to fund it. So anyway. they, they wanted to be $60,000 sure. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, it's interesting. Well, listen, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. This has been, been really interesting to talk to you. Um, if somebody wants to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, so they can send me an email, uh, ben at lawfirmra.com. R is in red, A is in apple. That's our, our hopelessly out of date website. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's the, that's the place to reach me. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we, uh, if you're a doc in need of medical malpractice defense, we've got you covered. If you have anything else, let me know. And uh, if I can't do it, I can find who can. Excellent. Well, good. So uh, once again, um, we've had the pleasure of speaking with uh, Ben Lusty here from Wrencher Andrew Wearden in, uh, in the great state of Utah. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And uh, this show is sponsored by Emotion Track, which uses artificial intelligence and other technology to uncover um, hidden insights that help lawyers with uh, mediation and trial case preparation. Thanks again, Ben. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Mm -hmm.